You're listening to Histories of Science in Africa, a podcast supported by the Center for Science and Society at Columbia University. Our guest for episode number two is Kalala Ngala Mulume, a professor of Africana Studies and History at Bryn Mawr College, where he also serves as co-director of health studies. Professor Ngala Mulume specializes in the history of health and disease in West Africa. His 2012 book, Colonial Pathologies, Environment, and Western Medicine in San Luis de Senegal, explores how French medical authorities and West African city dwellers responded to continual re-emergences of deadly epidemic diseases and environmental contamination. The backdrop for our conversation with Professor Ngala Mulume is the second chapter of his book, which looks closely at the great yellow fever epidemics that struck Senegal in the last third of the 19th century. So that our listeners are on the same page, could you give us a brief overview of your work and, in particular, the book chapter that we read for today? As a historian of empire, my work focuses on what uh, scholars have called the colonization of the body in order to optimize the health and productivity of the population. So I look at the the ways the state tries to regulate uh, the population in dealing with epidemics. And I have focused on three major epidemics yellow fever, cholera, and the bubonic plague. But I have also paid attention to other allergies, for example, the seasonal allergies. In summer months, it is mostly the epidemics, but also other allergies. And then in the winter, I mean, what they call there, the the cold season, which which starts in in January until April, uh, you know, there are other allergies too. So I pay attention to all these um, conditions. But so far, I have focused on the major epidemics and how, through the regulation, uh, how they've uh, used the hygiene, the, the, the state has used the uh, hygiene, the building codes, urban planning in dealing with the disease. And also looking at, you know, what they call deviant cases, you know, the, the diseased bodies, the sexually diseased, the insane, as well as the routine healthcare, you know, in between epidemics the provision of health care, the access to, to the care, and also dealing with vaccination. That is one aspect, which means looking at the state operation. But I also look at the, the responses and the initiatives of the, the, the colonized, not only the, how local healers and ritual experts responded. You know, the, in the archives, they, they are identified as the enemies, those who prevent you know, the population from going forward for health, going to the hospital, going to the dispensary, to the health center. So they are kind of the enemy. Muslim clerics, healers, midwives, all of them are, you know, engaged in this uh, resistance. We can call that resistance. But for the rest of the, the, the population, we look at their attitude toward the scientific medicine or biomedicine. Some of them accept it. Some of them are hesitant because, you know, based on their own observation of, for example, they, they see that people were vaccinated against the smallpox. Some of them later on caught the disease again. So, so you know, you have their vaccine hesitancy based on observation, not on uh, cultural attitude, but just on their own observation. So it ranges, the response ranges from resistance to selective acceptance of scientific medicine. And now the, the first chapter is dealing with uh, the city because since the city is the unit of analysis. And when you talk about the epidemics, you talk about cities, you know, I mean, which means concentration of people. That's where pathogens, human pathogens can spread easily because of high concentration of the population. We need to understand the growth of the city, you know, how it became the way it is, to understand the layout of the city and also uh, meaning also uh, understand the diverse categories of people who live in the city. The, the special layout tells us something about the uh, socioeconomic factors. And Saint Louis uh, started as a small fishing village uh, in the 17th century and it uh, developed into a trading center near the mouth of the Senegal River. And it attracted merchants from Bordeaux, Marseille, uh, in southern France. And uh, it developed into an international kind of port linking southern France to West Africa and to the Caribbean. And uh, it will become the capital of Senegal 
And the, since many of the Europeans who came were single men, they interacted with local women, uh, contracted uh, marriages, and and out of that, those unions emerged a, a community of uh, uh, Métis or mixed-race uh, people who will play an important role in uh, politics, uh, liberal professions, and uh, economic activities. And, uh, and so that... Given also the fact that France had selected those four cities on the coastal region, Saint Louis, Dakar, Gorée, Rifisque, uh, they became commune, meaning that they were electing their own uh, municipal council and the mayors. And so we see a development of vibrant civic culture there, and which makes the situation very complex in the ways in which the authorities will be dealing with the people who some of them born there will be in born in the poor cities we, we will be nationals will have civic rights electoral rights and so on so what was the impetus for you deciding to study epidemics and the provision of healthcare uh, both from a state centered focus and also from a bottom up social history perspective was it based on prior experience that you've had in related fields or interests that you've cultivated or perhaps the influence of mentors could you talk a bit more about why you were drawn to thinking about healthcare and disease? Yeah, there are two things. One is the personal observations. I lived in the Congo Democratic, where I grew up, and uh, I observed uh, the burden of disease around, you know, infectious diseases, chronic illnesses, environmental factors affecting the health. And so I, and, and I also uh, observed the, how weak the state was you know, in providing uh, healthcare, in building the medical infrastructure and uh, those questions. And then when I looked at the rhetoric studying colonial empire, I saw that medicine was one of the, in the medical discourse, in, in, the, in the colonial discourse, medicine was one of the justifications of their achievement, you know, to show that. They explained that one, one of the civil, you know, aspect of the civilizing mission you know, besides education and uh, building infrastructure and so on, was the fight against disease, the burden of disease. And I became interested in looking at the ways in which, you know, go, going beyond the broad statement, policy statement, to look at the practice, how on the ground did they actually achieve that goal. In my graduate school, then I became interested in, when you talk about hegemony, so I was not interest in other aspects of the hegemony. I was interested in health and hegemony to see how health contributed to expanding French influence in the colony. And I have not had the chance to look at the, the Belgian experience in the Congo yet concerning health, but you know, there are similarities from the work of other scholars in dealing with sleeping seasickness, uh, malaria, and so on. Following up on that, can you talk a little bit more about the roles discourses of health and medicine specifically played in the colonial policy in San Luis um, and elsewhere, if you'd like, and why this particular discourse is seen as such an effective tool? That's a good question. One aspect of urban life, one aspect of health and medicine is that epidemics are allowing us to consider a number of factors. One is the, the social basis of disease. For example, when, when you look at the urban areas, urban areas are places where disease transmits easily. And that will be the focus of the colonial administration. Dealing with a disease will become an important part of conducting the colonizing process. And we see in a city, the city allows us also, or epidemics uh, in general, allows us to uh, look at, to understand health inequalities that are based on uh, the, the lines of division within the urban so so societies, how people can access to healthcare, and how disease or outbreaks force the administration to transform, to try to transform physically and uh, operationally the structure of the city in order to benefit all the residents. And so that the colonial discourse, you know, you cannot run a colonial city when you face all these diseases. So the disease is pre present there. As seasons are changing, you are faced with the spread of human pathogens and, and it affects all operations. We cannot undertake military campaigns without looking at how disease will affect 
the health of the soldiers. You cannot plan on uh, economic uh, transformation without looking at the health of the workers. And you have to deal with all these allergies so that the epidemics and not so the, the chronic illnesses, but the epidemics became central to the colonial discourse and to the missionary discourse. And they have to deal with those issues until we will see the development of the germ theory uh, when we move from miasma to the germ theory, then that understanding will help change practices uh, around alleviate and change also the discourse. Especially on this last point that you've raised, the switch towards germ theory in the 20th century, we have a hypothetical question we'd like to ask you. If you sent a French colonial doctor to Senegal in the 1860s versus, say, sending a French colonial doctor in the 1920s, one of the things that becomes very clear in your chapter is that their understanding of epidemiology and how germs spread has, in some sense, been revolutionized. And yet there are also some continuities or similarities that one could establish between these two eras in terms of colonial health practices or discourses. Could you talk a bit about what would be different between these two eras and also what might be the same or similar? Yeah, that is a good question. Let's talk about the, the doctor who arrives there in 1860. The knowledge, the medical no knowledge the doctor has, and the, at the time, you know, may, many of them are, all of them are Navy doctors because and, until the 1890s, medicine is run by, uh, state medicine is run by military Navy doctors. It will become a civilian medicine only after 1897. And so when these doctors arrive in 1860, they are equipped with the miasmatic theory, which states that, uh, you know, the disease is caused by some kind of vapor, desert, that, that is uh, an underground or that is in the swamp or that is in the cemeteries. When these tombs open, they release some vapor that they call miasma. And then when you inhale that vapor, then you, you get sick. You have also how it spread. It spread through contact, you know, from those who, who got sick and died and those who, and the, the, the objects that were in contact with, with them and the houses where they lived, you know, remain contaminated. And, and so it is that theory of miasma that framed their understanding of disease etiology. The second thing is acclimatization. Since 1857, when Budden wrote his uh, Treaty of Medical Geography, he emphasized the importance of climate in generating disease conditions, in affecting the health of the Europeans. So you have the climate, we have the heat, because we are talking about the tropics, and the heat was seen as being a factor of death. It affects, they described it as affecting all the organs. And so that if you stay more than two, three years there, you are likely to, to experience what they call the tropical anemia. You know, so we have their climatic determinism, but there, there is also the possibility for acclimatization, which means it is not just for people, but also the plants. It is possible to, to uh, that, that various organisms adapt differently to the environment. For example, those who just arrive, they are more vulnerable than those who have, for example, survived their first summer, or they call it in Senegal, hivernage, uh, because it is, you know, deadly season where you have all the, these epidemics and so on, uh, and the heat. So we have behind the theory of acclimatization, we have also the notion of seasoning. Uh, so survived a number of years, then you, you are seasoned, which means your body has adapted to the tropical environment. But you are you are not uh, invulnerable to epidemics. It means you may have caught yellow fever and su survived, but you can still get sick and die, you know, but you are better than the first comers. And so, so that is the, the ideas that are incorporated into the epidemiology of disease for the doctor who comes, you know, we have miasmatic theory and you have the environmental aspect of it, you know, the heat, you know, tropical climate uh, and so on. So when they arrive in St. Louis in 1860, what they see is they see water everywhere because not only the river, St. Louis on an island surrounded by the, in the middle of the Senegal River, but around St. Louis, you have, uh, you know, standing areas of standing water 
they look at the local population. Those who have lived there, you know, the, the Africans, they see them since they grew up there, they have somehow developed immunity. That has implications in terms of medical care. It means if you have resources, limited resources, you will need to focus on the health to protect the health of the Europeans, the soldiers, the European populace in general, and then the Africans who are associated with them, clerk, interpreters, and so on, uh, secretaries, messengers. Even if they are immune, you know, according to, to this understanding, if they are immune, they can still transmit the pathogens to the Europeans, and which means that they, you take care of those who are working with, with you, and less resources will then be devoted to the rest of the population, you see. Because when you think that they are immune, then, you know, you see you are not in hurry to do that. What you can do is to make sure that there's separation. And these ideas will inspire initiatives to separate urban residential segregation. And we'll see that in uh, the forced removals of people... I, especially the urban poor from the center of the city because they, they are, you know, they are blaming them for, the authorities blame them for deteriorating the urban environment through their uh, lack of hygiene, uh, throwing garbage as, elsewhere and so on. And uh, it will be, and we see that uh, responses to malaria, for example, in, in, in Freetown, in Sierra Leone, uh, it will be, you will see the creation of hill stations, the hill station on the hill, because the idea is that the miasma, if you live at the ground level of the sea level, you are la likely to, uh, to catch miasma. But if you live on hill, then the wind will prevent miasma from reaching the, the top of the hill. And so that they, you know, we'll see them erecting uh, new constructions, new uh, houses on the hill. But they failed to convince, especially the merchant, that it was a good idea to go there. Even if the railroad, a four-mile railroad was built to reach there, but merchant uh, refused to leave downtown to go stay there because it is far away from their storehouses. Uh, and we will see that also in other epidemics, in like 1901 uh, bubonic plague in, in Cape Town and in Durban, we see how Africans are being removed forcefully. The removal is wanted on social ground, uh, but epidemics will provide the most important argument for that segregation, uh, residential segregation. Now, in 1920, the doctors who arrived there are or already, uh, you know, by 1901, uh, the German theory has gained momentum following the work done on yellow fever in Cuba, in Veracruz, in Mexico, where it was clear that they confirmed the mosquito theory that was already defined in the 1890s. But then it will be confirmed that, you know, mosquito is the key. The germ theory indicated that diseases, you know, from the 1880s on, it was clear that all these uh, diseases had as agent microorganisms so that we are not looking for miasma. You know, it is the, the microbe, you know, the parasite. But they still see that if before the 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 indigen, as they call them, the local population, the indigen, if had the possibility of carrying miasma on their clothes and so on, now that we know that the disease is caused by these microorganisms, they still have those. <laughs> you see. So we, we have a kind of continuity in the, in the perception that if, if it is a microorganism, they, they have them, and, and so that we still need to, you know, separate them. Uh, and in the new cities, in San Luis, it was difficult because this, this is an old city, and also given the question of citizenship and so on. But for the new cities like Conakry in Guinea and other city, Brazzaville and so on, they will be built on the basis of racial separation, you see, so, so that you don't have to, to face that kind of mixing. You can mix at the workplace, but, you know, not in terms of residential area. So that the doctor is coming with a better understanding of the disease etiology in terms of germs, but the, they, associate, they still associate the Africans with the germ and the germs with the Africans, you see. We see that in bubonic plague in, uh, in 1901 in, in, in Cape Town. We see that in, in Dakar in 1914, 
uh, with bubonic plague when uh, it was decided just to, to remove all the Africans from the plateau. And uh, because of political implications, that operation will not succeed. It will be only out of 28,000, they wanted to remove only 8,000 or so who were removed, but the rest uh, stayed because of the, these were also voters. So you have political uh, implications for municipal elections, for the election of the deputy to represent Senegal in French parliament. And, and so, so, uh, so we have continuity and change. So the changes in, in the epidemiology of the disease, but the continuity in the perceptions. It is, you know, it is also based on social practices, on cultural uh, differences. But the medicine will provide the best, the most important argument for, you know, maintaining, creating that distance, geographical distance. I wanted to kind of come back to the idea that you mentioned before about selective acceptance of biomedical interventions, particularly around epidemics, because it's something that, that we see a lot in the literature, right? Local populations pick and choose when they want to cooperate and have their own methods of resistance, right, to the biomedical interventions as well as colonial power more broadly. So I'm wondering if you could talk about change over time and how you think um, local populations' perceptions of their own perceptions of the disease and colonial approaches to the epidemic control changed over time, as well as if the methods of resistance changed over time. You know, as the colonial state grew, did they feel they had more or less ability to kind of challenge what they were doing. The first thing that I would like to qualify is the term resistance is used by doctors, by the colonial officials. But when you look at the reality, we will not talk about resistance across the board. Those who resist, when you look at the disease categories, biomedicine looks at natural diseases and they look at man-made diseases like environmental uh, situations and so on. But the, when you look at the categories, used by the, the Africans. You have also natural diseases. There's somebody waking up in the morning with a headache that is part of natural disease. And the remedies are plants, you know, roots, uh, leaves, and so on. Uh, so from that perspective, both medicines accept each other, have the same approach. But then you have in the Africans category, you have also the disease of man. Of man. So the first one, the natural disease of God, that's how they see it, that's natural. But then you have disease of men or women, you know, but in their categories, men in, in, in broad categories. That is the disease that a person gets because of their breaking of the taboos. The taboos are linked to some practices. For example, if you are a, a merchant, you are a trader in Senegal and you go to the Senegal River, you are, you know, dealing in, in, in gum or other commodities. You take canoes to go up the river looking for these commodities and you bring them to sell them. But you need protection as you go. And the protection is in terms of charms, can be bracelets, it can be necklaces, it can, which means empowered object that you wear on your lucky charms, you know, <laughs> you know, so that you will be safe. Your canoe will not experience accident and so on. So, so they believe in that kind of supernatural protection. But when you are given those potent objects, they come also with prescriptions, which means I, I just want to give uh, just a simple example. Never eat eggs, <laughs> you see, because the egg may weaken that power. So if you, in the process of trading, you eat eggs, then you have broken a taboo and then you could get sick. See, that is the disease of man. It is because of your own recklessness that you have caused this. But you have also a third category that scientific medicine doesn't have, which is what they call disease of spirit. For example, if you don't offer libations, because the ancestors are looked at as being intermediaries between the, those who went before and the living, you need to offer them libations and from time to time and so on to gain their protection. So if you don't, in your daily life, you don't follow those prescriptions, then bad things may happen. They may not continue to protect you. But it can be also that somebody gets sick, natural remedies can't help that person. And then a diviner may find that okay, actually that person is called to become a healer. So only if she or he accept that calling, that they can be healed. In biomedicine, you don't have those two other categories you know, disease of man and disease of spirit. That understanding affects the Africans 
approach to biomedicine. For example, somebody sick, they can start with the roots and so on because the, the assumption is that it is natural. If it doesn't work, then they can uh, look for diviners to see if there is something else, if there is another, if it is disease of man or disease of God. And after that, then they can go to the Western-based hospital or they can start with, in their itinerary, they can start with going to the doctor's office. If it doesn't work, then they go to the healers. Yeah, so it is not automatic. So it is, it depends on the situation and on the cases. When we talk in the archives, the medical discourse emphasizes resistance. We, we need to, to take it with caution. Their attitude is, is linked to their perception of the effectiveness even of the biomedicine. It depends on the access to it. And I will give another example. The authorities created, in addition to the military hospital, in the 18, late 1860s, they created a, a civilian hospital. But the location of that hospital was on an ancient cemetery. And uh, uh, automatically, people will not go there, knowing that that is a cemetery, place of the cemetery, given their cultural sensitivity to a place. So the hospital becomes a place where where you go to die because, you know, you have the spirits, you know, of the diseased are there. And that can help also explain the reluctance to go. Women may not accept to go to, to give birth in the hospital because there they find only men. You see, in those years, in the second half of 19th century and uh, in at the beginning of 20th century. So the fact that we have the presence of men, these military doctors, even after the civilian doctors are present. But, you, you know, a Muslim woman will not just go and face a man, even a, a black man, a black doctor. No, it must be a woman. At least a woman nurse should be there. So, so these are aspects in early medical practice that explain why people will not show up there, you know, when they are sick, because a woman will not go to see a man who is there let herself being touched by that man, even if that man is a doctor. Later on, by 1910, doctors will understand that actually we need colonial intermediaries. We need middlemen, women, who can mediate that relationship, not just being interpreted, but cultural interpreters. Uh, and we need the presence of men, women also there. And another example, when we, take, we, look at, we talk about smallpox vaccination, the success rate of smallpox vaccination was 66%, which is fine, you know. But people observed that those who were vaccinated, some of the people who were vaccinated got sick later on. And so that, that prevented them from actually accepting the vaccine because they saw that, you know, you are not actually protected fully. But they didn't understand the questions of uh, relative immunity or the compromised immune system. But they had also, before the Europeans, they had variolation, which was, you know, you take, you make incision on the arm, you take live matters, you transfer them. The person may get sick, but, you know, if they, they don't get sick, then they are protected. So that was the, the early forms of vaccine, if you can say, that spread in the Muslim world. And Muslims going to Mecca in pilgrimage, you learn that. So it was practiced. And then when the biomedicine vaccine, smallpox vaccine arrives, then they observed, you know, the, the results. And when they saw it wasn't 100% protection, then you have hesitancy. That's why I say selective acceptance. Biomedicine was great concerning eye surgery, for, for, for example, for cataract, and, and so that people will go. Even Muslim clerics will go for getting that because they saw the success. Your part about vaccines is reminding me of Alicia Renee's book on the politics of polio in northern Nigeria, because she also mentions this hesitancy towards vaccines because, right, if it's not 100% effective and the community already has its own means of dealing with this disease, then why? Yes, and, and also uh, you have political implications. For example, in, in 2001, with the frictions between Muslims in northern Nigeria were opposed, for example, to the Iraq war. When vaccine came, polio vaccine came, they thought they protested the, the war, then the vaccine would be sent to to kill them. So we have conspiracy theories there. I have a ton of notes here just on what we've been discussing and things that you've been bringing up. I was wanting to circle back to you really drove home the idea that you know the, these advances in whether it was epidemiology 
or other medical sciences, things like evolutionary biology, 1850s onwards. And I know that, you know, the watermark in world history for this would be Darwin and other European-based scientists. But it, it remained fascinating to, to think about these colonial experts somewhat rapidly, I guess, came to realize that it wasn't these miasmas and that it was actually microorganisms that are the vectors for diseases. And yet, you know, certain associations remain. If it is microorganisms, as you said, it must be the antigen that remain the hosts or that remain unhygienic are, are still considered the problem. This is something that strikes me, especially in terms of the history of Africa. And, and the, one of the main reasons for doing the podcast is to try and bring Africa into a sort of global world history of science. So often, if you take a general history of science class at the undergraduate level, the odds that you're going to get some content from Africa is minuscule, probably. But I think that studies like yours and, and the work that you do shows you know, it provides very detailed and rich case studies just how integral other parts of the world besides the West have been to this history of science and of medicine. It's a question about expertise. I'm sure in all of the archival documents that you looked at and the reports, in large part, you would have local informants, interlocutors being written out of the narrative of the successes or the advances that colonial health practitioners are making. But in reality, we know that their testimonies, their information for um, whether it's people out in the field, people doing some sort of study, that, you know, their knowledge of local environments, of local cultural practices, whether it might be plant matter or knowledge about water systems, that actually, you know, is an under-acknowledged, if not unacknowledged, aspect of what's going on here. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about uh, the different layers of expertise that are part of this story and what gets labeled expertise, Western colonial scientific practitioners. And in our post-colonial world, this remains the case, the experts and, you know, what counts as expertise is particularly techno-scientific understandings of, of, of how these things work. And yet, you know, if you go to different forest communities in Central and Eastern Africa to this day, there are big pharmaceutical companies that are tapping the expertise locally of people who live in forested regions and who have deep knowledge about plants and, and how to mix them, how to extract what's useful from them. They don't have lab settings to tell you, you know, the toxicity or the curative properties necessarily of the matter, but they have knowledge that is then exploited and used to people's benefit, predominantly in places that are not uh, where the expertise comes from. Wondered if you could talk a bit about those different layers of expertise, what gets counted as expertise, and how a study like yours can interrupt, inform, um, extend our understanding of global history of, of science and medicine. When do you, you go into the archives, you enter into a world where knowledge is produced under specific circumstances, and and that knowledge can be contested. But the way it is, you know, expertise is associated with formal education. You go to school, you get a degree in medicine, in biology, and so on. And that degree gives you the authority. And for example, we started with the French doctors who arrived. They had their degrees from faculty of medicine in various places in France. And they arrive, they have what sociologist uh, Pierre Bourdieu called the scientific capital, which means they have the authority to talk about medicine. And those among the colonized who didn't go through the same training, their knowledge is dismissed. That's the case of local healers, because, you know, they tend to emphasize the ritual aspect of healing. Uh, all the ceremonies, dancing and, the, you know, trance and so on. But that is just one aspect. But the basis, the material basis of healing, these healing traditions, that's the leaves and the, the roots and the, the plants. And so they, they dismiss them as because they, did, they don't have that degree. So, so we are dealing with what uh, we can call the, the tyranny of experts. Those who have the word, something to say, doctors, you know, and we see them dominated, dominating the health boards that are listened to. But let's look at the, 
the local knowledge first. For example, in Senegal, why? And again, to, to join, you know, Jesse's question concerning selective ac- ac- acceptance in the second half of the 19th century. Somebody who had a broken bone will not go to the doctor's office because the local knowledge can heal that. They know how to deal with it. Stabilize the, the leg, they put some um, sand on top of it, they add things and so on, they expose it to heat, and, uh, you know, they, they put things on, on the leg, you know, some uh, uh, medicine and so on. The leg can stay that way for, I don't know how many days, how many weeks or days, and then after that, the bone will reconnect and will heal. So they will not do that. A second uh, thing, somebody bitten by a snake, they had knowledge of anti-venom, and so they will use it, local knowledge. And they had the knowledge of the plants as a result of uh, experimentation over centuries. They knew that these types of plants, if you make a tea out of these leaves, they can fight intestine worms. So they, they knew. In cases, for example, uh, a village being affected by, they saw some people who were affected by sleeping sickness and they link it. They observe that, you know, these people have been going into this, this forest. And if you go there, you get bitten by some fleas, some mosquitoes. And if you are bitten by those fleas, you are likely to develop this. Since they don't have a treatment against it, the only measure they will take will be not to go there, to maybe to move the village away from that space. And, and whenever they go uh, and uh, enter into the forest, if they identify those fleas, they know that this is not a good place. Or they can use fire, you know, and so on to try to get rid of it. So we have this local, local knowledge that they had experimented. And they knew that for those cases, you don't have to go to the medical office. But there are other uh, issues for which they will go. So the local knowledge has been, as you said, it has been neglected. But going to Senegal, back to Senegal, in the 1870s, even if some doctors like Dr. Beranger Ferro, who arrived with, you know, that expertise, scientific medicine of the scientific capital of biomedicine, arrived in Senegal, but he was open-minded enough to go to the market and see what roots and uh, plants uh, and leaves that the local people were selling to deal with specific diseases. So he inventoried those and he wrote an article that was published in, in the Monitor du Senegal where he made a list of these plants and the, the disease they treated. And also he, made, he gave a scientific name of those plants. So that, that is a, an isolated case of a Western doctor who was open-minded about local knowledge. But is, that's a unique case. But others were not with this. They just dismissed it. They dismissed local knowledge. And going into the post-colonial uh, situation, we see that, you know, pharmaceutical companies are now interested in this uh, kind of local knowledge. They go and inventory these uh, plants and roots and see their uh, healing power. And a good example uh, is in South Africa, maybe two decades ago, the sun people, the, the hunter-gatherers, when they go you know, hunting in, in the Kalahari Desert, they may go for days. There's no food to eat, so uh, they may find some berries here and there. But there is a plant, I forgot its scientific name. When you open it, it looks like an uh, apple inside, you know. What they do, they, you cut it and then you suck it and uh, it suppresses hunger. You can go for days. But this is an invention of the sun, you know, the koi sun. And the debates in South Africa were about, you know, providing them with, uh, because they've invented, you know, that's their invention. So you need to share profit with them. But when you go to the 19th century, second half of the 19th century, you go to Senegal, you see doctors, even when you look at their administrative assumption, you see they start in a small office within the direction of interior. And then slowly, because, you know, they are with the challenge of the, the disease, starting in 1867, with the first major yellow fever epidemic, doctors' voice becomes loud. It is sought. His expertise is sought. And so they start for forming these health boards, sanitary commission, the public and sanitation commission, but all of them are presided over by either the doctors or the mayor, but we have at least one or two doctors whose voice there is uh, understood. And slowly, slowly, and as more epidemics are striking, making more deaths, then doctors will climb in administrative uh, ladder 
You will see them, be, you know, becoming members of the administrative council that advises the governor on many issues. And then they will become members of the defense council and no decision made, made in the colony will be without, you know, the approval of the doctors. But within those commissions, those health boards, you could find the representative of the, the mayor will be there to represent the city. You will have representatives of the army, you will have veterinarian, you have the pharmacist, you will have the merchant, the business community. And so when it comes to deciding sanitary measures to take, you will see within the discussion, you will see a conflict rising there because of the interest. You see the interest of health represented by doctors and pharmacists and veterinarians, and then facing the interest of the mayor is there to defend his voters. And then you have political interest of the administration, of the colonial administration. The final measures that are taken represent a compromise. That kind of medicine becomes colonial medicine, separate from metropolitan science, because it is subordinated to specific political conditions and economic pressures. You see that in the votes. You know, when they vote, 20 people, they vote, you see who is in favor, who is against. And then the arguments that are presented, you can see that that knowledge that is produced, medical knowledge, is uh, it becomes colonial medicine subordinated to political and economic uh, interests. I came across this kind of debates in 1879, discussing cases of diarrhea that were observed among some Europeans. And they mentioned two cases of people who, who crossed the bridge between the slum of Gedendar and the city island, and they got sick. Since miasma theory was also linking smoke coming from the drying of fish by the indigenous, they link it to the disease. So within that debate, you find that once that question was raised, the blame was placed on the fishermen who dried the fish and generated that smoke. And you see the mayor, Mayor Gaspar Deves, bringing local knowledge. He says, no, we know this case of diarrhea. We link it to eating fish uh, that is not seasoned enough, you know, which means not well cooked. And, uh, you know, it can create this kind of diarrhea. So we have expertise against expertise, you know, local knowledge against scientific knowledge, medical knowledge. But of course, at the end, his voice was not prevalent. The result was to ban smoking of the fish during the rainy season. A second example I will give is in the 1880s, that is following the 1880-1881 yellow fever epidemic that produced high mortality among the Europeans. We don't say that it didn't produce also high mortality among the, the Africans because statistics are not there. They had no access to the hospital, not all of them. And so when they saw that they made the quarantines automatic every summer, during the rainy season, because they know that it is the time when you have these, these epidemics of yellow fever. And so they will uh, impose automatic quarantine. It will go on until the 1890s, when we see merchants protesting against the continuous reliance on miasma theory, when the germ theory was already spreading. The debates will rage over that. So we'll see doctors becoming kind of conservative and merchants becoming progressist in a certain way, you know, they call it new knowledge, you know, to be implemented, while doctors still rely heavily on uh, miasmatic theory. And then in the post-colony, we see that actually there's some recognition that this plant could be, we see that in South Africa, example, you know, the South African in the post-apartheid after 1994, New South African government actually is one of the few governments in Africa that have made effort to promote local knowledge. They've created even one institution about local knowledge. And they've sent biologists and, and chemists and others to, to work with the Sangoma, the local healers, study their plant and see their efficacy, toxicity, and then see how they can promote that knowledge and make it safe. And also it was part of the, the project of the government to make the Sangoma auxiliary agent of the medical system. Because many people still go to see them for these other types of disease categories that I mentioned. But then since HIV AIDS is prevalent uh, in South Africa, these Sangoma will be instructed to also inform the patients about the need for the use of condom to be tested 
thinking about the debates between public health and economic experts. I read this book for a class in January of this year with uh, Rhiannon Stevens. And one of the things that really kind of caught my attention was that there was a lot of parallels between responses to epidemics then and now. I was noticing debates over the financial costs of shutting down and quarantining, stigmatization of particular groups during the spread of the virus. And so I'm wondering if as a historian of epidemics, if you notice any yourself as this pandemic has unfolded, and if so, what do you make of these similarities? That is a very good question concerning historical parallels. It is striking to see, especially this pandemic, I have noticed the same thing during HIV AIDS pandemic, and I have seen that also during the Ebola, 2014, 2016 Ebola epidemics, and then coronavirus. I will start with the coronavirus. One striking historical parallel I observed was the use of the military language and the use of the military personnel to deal with the epidemic. I was in Paris in March of last year when uh, the pandemic, the coronavirus had devastated Italy and Spain and eastern part of France, the Mulhouse region. But then I saw life was normal in Paris. I left Paris on March the 12th. Four days later, on March the 16th, President Macron addressed a message to the French people. And his message was 21 minutes. But during those 21 minutes, he pronounced the word, we are at war. Nous sommes en guerre. We are at war. He pronounced it six times in a short message. And so he used the military language, you know, the war. He referred to coronavirus as an enemy. And he decreed a general mobilization. Those measures involved the use of police and the military people to enforce those measures, to enforce compliance. So I found that really striking. You know, we can also go back in time, as I mentioned, the 2014-2016 Ebola epidemic in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia. And there also, because of the weak government structures, the lack of sufficient doctors or nurses, the disease was spreading, and here it was spreading in cities. And while the earlier epidemics in Congo were in rural areas until 1995, when it reached the Kikwit city for the first time and created panic. The use in that case also, you know, the intervention of the international community for fear that the disease could reach New York easily or Paris or Beijing or other places. And so they sent U.S. military there to build tents and labs to deal with the cases to be hospitalized and all the protective gears how to dispose of the bodies. We had also British troops who went there. And you have local government also, you know, mobilized the military in enforcing quarantine, enforcing cordon sanitaire, people being held in schools, even if they didn't provide the water and so on, which will lead to protest. But we see the use of the military. And if you go back in my own work, we go back to the 1917-1920 bubonic plague in St. Louis. And there, again, doctors didn't engage in conversation with leaders of the slums, of the indigenous, in order to discuss the measures to take to avoid the spread of bubonic plague. You know, how they were going to get the people involved in catching rats, for example, and so on. Or how to declare, you know, when somebody is sick, how to declare that case. They didn't do all this. They came with their medical knowledge. They saw the, indi- the indigenous as being ignorant people. And so they just needed to comply without engaging them. People protested. When you look at the petition they sent to the mayor, although these are people who, are, who didn't have a formal education, but some of them who knew how to read and write, you know, they, they wrote this petition in a broken French. But you can see that they are not opposing the measures, but the authorities must be sensitive to their cultural practices. They didn't have to do that. So they decided just to impose cordon sanitaire around their villages to evacuate them. That's missed opportunity for engaging in in cross-cultural communication that failed. Entire population of the slum was evacuated to the mainland without infrastructure. And some of them were forced to go to stay with their relatives and so on. So that's one historical parallel that I can mention. The second parallel that I also identified was the conflict of interest between the interests of public health, those of commerce, and individual liberties. 
that was striking and I knew it was coming, you know, given the fact that you are dealing with an unknown disease in West Africa in the second half of 19th century. Yellow fever was an unknown disease. It created panic and so on. And coronavirus was also at the beginning an unknown disease. How to deal with it, which measures take. As the lockdown went on, the longer it went on, the more it led to the conflict. Politicians cared about their election, were willing to move fast to get the economy going, and so to oppose medical knowledge, to silence, you know, even the doctors who were in the commission to help the authorities. And so, you know, the fear of economic collapse indicated that conflict. Say we cannot shut up. Some people, they say that you know, some people can die. You know, we need to accept that some people will die, but we need to get the economy going. I mean, I was not surprised because in my research, I have seen the debates over quarantines in the 1880s in Senegal, how merchants started to complain about the automatic quarantine because of their operations, because their businesses will collapse if that kind of quarantine continues. We see within that conflict of interest, there's also what I observed, especially here too, and in France, the conflict of interest of the doctors themselves and the conflict between medical knowledge and profit. Dr. Gigi Raoult, he runs this uh, Mediterranean Center and University Hospital in uh, Marseille. He claimed that hydroxychloroquine was the key. And he saw that the medical establishment were putting an emphasis on funding vaccine and not drugs. And he argued that that drive was, was motivated by profit, that big pharma had interest in a vaccine that will report a lot of money compared to emphasizing treatment in the days of hydroxychloroquine. It is cheap, you see. They, they will not make money, you know, if the doctors are encouraged to use uh, hydroxychloroquine. And actually it was brought before the French Senate to testify because other doctors were also opposing him. And those doctors had personal interest that they didn't disclose. And those who are members of the scientific committee had conflict because in those doctors whose research was funded by Big Pharma were also opposing the use of hydroxychloroquine even without looking at its uh, efficacy. I watched his defense before the Senate how he was answering questions, how he was, he was disappointed to see how some doctors were experiencing that conflict. So that is something I found also striking. Going back in 19th century, even after the German theory, after 1901, you will see ongoing commitment of doctors to the miasma theory. So you see the coexistence of miasmatic theory and the German theory until 1914 also. It has to do with the routines and the fear because the germ theory was new and they took even doctors, they took campaign, you know, to, to convince even the, some doctors that that was the, the right way uh, to go. That is another historical parallel that we see between past and the present practices about quarantine, about the COVID-19. We see these parallels, conflict of interest, but we have also civil liberties. In Senegal, 19th century, people felt that these search parties that went in your house to see if uh, everything is clean, it violated people's uh, liberties because they felt that their domicile, their home was violated in a certain way. And uh, we see the same thing with uh, the protests. We saw protests uh, against the wearing of the masks. Some people using masks to make political statement in tune with some political discourse that was dismissing medical knowledge for economic interest. We see the mask becoming part of the protest and part of the political discourse. The third historical parallel that I can mention is the stigmatization. When you have an epidemic, some groups will be stigmatized. The indigenous, in the case I'm talking about, the indigenous were stigmatized because they were seen as being responsible for spreading the disease. And in the case of cholera epidemics in Senegal, you have Muslims being blamed because there was high mortality among the local population. The majority of them are Muslims. And then the Europeans had low mortality. You had only 92 Europeans who died 
versus like 4,000 local people who died according to the missionary record. And their missionary discourse will present it in terms of religion. The God of the Christians is stronger than the God of the Muslims. But in the medical discourse, we see that indigenous are blamed for the disease. The same way they blamed the spread of yellow fever, we see them also. When we go to the 15th century, when syphilis appeared, there was French-Italian war in the 1490s. The French troops invaded Italy. And soon they were dying, you know. Many of them were dying after many months in the field. An unknown disease. And so the Italians started to call that disease the French disease. And the French called it the Italian disease. You see the stigma. And the Arabs called it the Christian disease. <laughs> you see. And yeah, so stigma is always used. But the disease in question was simply syphilis, but it was not known late 15th century. Now, when we look at Ebola in West Africa, it became clear that there was a stigma attached to Ebola survivors. They saw them as being contagious, that they would still transmit that disease, even if they were not physically sick. And so they are shown, you know, they were shown and it required a campaign to explain that Ebola will kill you in a few hours through heavy hemorrhage. But if somebody has survived it, going about his own business, then you shouldn't have a stigma against that person. Another example, HIV AIDS. Many governments refused in, back in the 1980s when HIV AIDS uh, appeared. Uh, many governments, especially here I'm talking about Africa, many governments refused to declare an epidemic, especially places where tourism was really an important source of revenue, like Kenya, Zimbabwe, South Africa. It took them a while. It was the Ugandan government that was the first to actually declare it, to bring a famous Ugandan musician from London to show. It was slim, you know, the slim disease, as they called it. And to convince people to use condom, practice safe sex, and so on. And President Museveni was not afraid about tourism collapsing. He saw that fighting the disease was important. It took a while for the Kenyan government, Congolese government, all the governments to actually declare the disease, no, no matter the impact of it on uh, stigma on the country and the impact on uh, the economy. We come to covid I observed that uh, the political discourse in Washington was, this is the Chinese virus. Again, you see that is a statement of stigma. China being a com competitor of the USA. Even if Chinese manufacturing was producing all these masks that, you know, were sent to uh, Europe and uh, all over the world. But still, you know, the stigma was there, you know, that this is the Chinese virus. And behind it was the idea that the Chinese don't do things properly, you know, they don't follow the protocols and so on and so on, or they are exposing everybody to emerging diseases. The label of Chinese virus will create stigma, not only stigma against China, but against the Asian Americans. I haven't found examples from Europe in the newspapers I read. From France, I don't see you know, attacks against Asian people. But here uh, we have seen a surge in attacks against not the Chinese Americans, but the Asian Americans. It covers the whole continent. You, know? you can be Indian, you can be Korean, you can be Japanese, you can be you are Chinese, you see. And so that you see these anti-Chinese attacks are triggered by that stigma that came from high places. It led to even issuance of a piece of legislation to make those attacks a criminal activity. And the last thing I would say is also the stigmatization of the tropics when it comes to Africa. So there's something that when we talk about continuity in the perception uh, something that has continued despite all the medical knowledge. The tropics are still looked at within the framework of the 19th century acclimatization theory. And I saw that, I observed that in Senegal, even in Congo, where every summer Europeans left you know, to go to France. And in Senegal, because we have a, a huge population of the French, summertime is time going. All of them, they go. <laughs> and you see that talking about it, they are preparing for it. Already in May, they are talking, when are you going? When are you leaving? And so on. Because they, they run away from the heat that will be coming. But when you go to France, you find it, it is hot too, <laughs> you know. 
And it has a long history in itself. And it is also accompanied by something else. Because of the fear of tropical climate, all the civil servants who went to Senegal, their tenure was two to three years. You know, you have to leave because of the, the climate. And then you see that it has continued in the post-colony, where those who go there in the framework of cooperation, expert, they are given a bonus they call hardship bonus because you are going into this harsh environment they will add another salary you know a stipend called hardship you know because you are in going into the tropical world and i found that uh, striking as continuing to this day so i think yeah these are the three historical parallels that i can use the use of military language and the military personnel the conflict of interest between the interest of public health and the interest of commerce and civil liberties, and also the stigmatization of people and of groups and of the environment.